This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, y'all, this is Monica. Here is a rare example of a series that I hope to do more of, False Flag Flashback. So stuff that isn't happening in real time that people may have forgotten about, that newbies weren't even aware of. And this happens to be the false flag that opened my eyes, that the scales fell from my eyes uh, when the Boston Marathon bombing happened. I was on the radio and I was getting ready to field calls. So I did all the research I could on any given topic. And in this case, the newspaper articles contradicted themselves and each other and never retracted. I was really, really baffled. And over time, I learned the truth of what happened that day. And uh, Adam from Deborah Gets Red Pilled asked me to give it to his mother-in-law, Deborah, in a nutshell, so that maybe it would pull the scales from her eyes. I don't know how much progress he's made with her. I don't know if I helped move that ball forward. I don't know, but I gave it my best effort. So when people ask me, the real story about the Boston Marathon bombing, I usually refer them to this episode. But I'll tell you, it can never be found, it seems like. it. I can't search for it. Other people can't find it searching for it. And even to the point where when I've tweeted with Adam, hey, can you post the link here? People want to see it. Those tweets are impossible to find. So for me, um, this is the most censored thing I've ever done. And finally, Adam just sent me the file. And he's like, here, you can share it directly. So I asked him if I could put it in my feed so that people can find it easily. And here it is. So here is my explanation to Deborah with Adam of the Boston Marathon bombing. It's a false flag flashback, trying to crack the code on that. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. All right, guys, we're back, and here with us right now is returning champion, first two-time uh, guest on the show, um, Mrs. Monica Perez, coming at us from where? Pasadena? Something like that. That area, LA. So Got cool. it. And uh, today, we're going to get into one of your specialties, which is the Boston Marathon bombing. And um, yeah, Deborah, what do you know about it? Just what the TV told me that these two brothers came and um, had a had a bone to, to pick and let off a bomb. That's it. Yeah, Muslims. They're all, Muslims. They're all like that. Rashes. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I've heard Monica. I've heard you do this presentation a few times, but we'll uh, we'll give it the DGRP um, treatment today. And um, yeah. Go for it. All right. Because previously I had just like done it off the cuff because I had really delved into it so much. But today I actually have like three pages of notes. I was kind of thinking that you would have, oh, this is what I think happened. That's what I think happened. And I was just going to slay every assumption that you made. But instead, I'll just walk you through it. And this one is really significant in my history because this is what red pilled me. Huh. So I was not red-pilled at all. I had a radio show. I was kind of drafted into being being a radio host by someone who thought I was kind of a novelty because I was an anarcho-capitalist, but I was never a truther. And I never, I would say on my radio show all the time, 9-11 wasn't an inside job. And I would have one reason and one reason alone that I just could not get past is that I did not believe that the U.S. government, that Dick Cheney, whatever, would do that that they would kill a bunch of people like that. Then when the Boston Marathon bombing happened and I had totally uh, deconstructed it, I, I realized that they would do it. This was because I thought it was real. A lot of people thought it was a hoax. If I thought it was a hoax, I might still have given government a pass, but I thought it was real. And then, I, then the scales fell from my eyes for 9-11 and everything else. And I realized 
even a draft, like a draft is basically unwilling soldiers who are sacrificed to the cause. Maybe Dick Cheney in his mind or whoever did it thought they were drafting people. So this just, the, all the scales fell from my eyes and I never would have happened if it weren't for the fact that I had this radio show. And to this day, I probably would not, I'd be very different in my outlook about the world. I, I, I don't know about by now, but yeah. I think I never, you know, it would have taken me much longer to find the truth. And this was 13 years or 12, at least 11 and a half years after 9-11. And what happened was I had this radio show. I was kind of drafted into it. It wasn't my thing. I used to get very nervous. It was a call-in show. I used to say things that people would disagree with. And as a result of that, I used to be hyper diligent about getting my facts in order because it was a call-in show and everybody heard everything that I didn't know. I hated the newspaper, but I would read it for whatever topic I was hitting and I wanted to be prepared for every single answer, every single question. So it would take me days to prepare for one three-hour show. And so, you were doing, it was like drive time radio in, yeah, well, in, Atlanta, in Atlanta? Yes, I, it was the number one talk radio station, I think, in that category in the country. And I had a weekend show. Okay. But occasionally, I would fill in during the week, which was a huge audience. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people. It's where Eric Erickson is right now. I'd fill in at his slot, maybe a little bit later. And this was one of those days. The Boston Marathon bombing happened on a day that I was filling in or like the next day when I was filling in for someone, which meant instead of my my audience, it was a drive time audience in a big city. And I was worried. So I wanted all my I's dotted, all my T's crossed. And I investigated the crap out of this story. And my number one thing was I wanted to know all the facts and I wanted to be able to answer all the questions. And as I, I think it must've been a two day period, I'd have to go back and look when the show aired. But I noticed that from day to day, it, the Boston Globe, which was covering the story the most, would change significant details of the story. And I would, I was so naive. I don't know if if you think this is silly, Deborah, maybe you still believe, but I would look for the retractions in the newspaper for the facts that they had published yesterday that were contradicted by the next day's paper. I was looking for retractions and I laugh at myself now because the retractions are always so minor. They never retract the stuff that dismantles a narrative, and in this case, a false narrative. So uh, I went through all the stuff, and as I was about to go to air, when my friend and producer said, what What are you planning on saying? I was like, oh, they didn't do it. They were CIA. <laughs> she was like, you're not saying that. You're, yeah. People will go running and screaming. She wasn't trying to censor me. She was trying to save my job. And I said, I'm not going on the air. And this is me. I was like, really wowed by being on the radio and nothing would have gotten me to just walk away, but I just couldn't. I didn't even know what to say, like mainly because I was like, well, I have nothing else and I can't rewrite the story. I have to just tell the story as I know it. We literally got the program director on the phone right before airtime so that he could talk her down. And he said, I thought he was going to, I didn't know what he was going to say, but he said, do you just, if you have reasons to believe what you believe and you make sure it's clear that stuff you know and uh, stuff that you think are clearly delineated, your facts, your sources, which is a journalistic standard that no one else has to live up to, I might add. But he said, you can say whatever you want. That guy was a star. Anyway, so I went to air with this stuff and... I had so much material and I actually poked the bear a few times. There were a few times when even I, I, like the Boston Globe, this is at the end of the story, literally wrote an article that definitely was rebutting something that I had said. Like they were, I was on their radar, which kind of makes me nervous to this day. So, uh, okay. So I actually, I never really had a presentation, but boy, did I go through a lot of um, prep for this. And I talk really fast because there's a lot. You ready? Ready. Yeah. Ready to, I have to go. Say, yeah. My husband sometimes calls me the fire hose. So, because <laughs> I just blast him with information. So get ready for the fire hose, Deborah. Okay. So you might remember that the story unfolded, the Boston Marathon bombing happened. A lot of people focus on that event because... Uh, they think it was a hoax. And I have no opinion on that. I've seen pictures that say it was a hoax. And I've seen people who said they were in it. And I really don't know because I never investigated that. But what I did find was the story about the aftermath, about the capture, the hunch, the martial law, the lockdown, all that stuff. I followed the details of that. And 
they were, some were very fishy. So I'll start with the first one. The first one was there were, uh, there was a cop, Sean Collier, who was killed in Boston at MIT. Do you remember that story in Cambridge? MIT, mm-hmm. there was a cop. Okay. So there were billboards and everything. He continues to be the, the, the law enforcement face of the Boston Marathon bombing. And he, the story was that he was shot five times by the Boston Marathon bombers who lured him. They were on the run. They lured him into a back alley or something because they wanted his gun. They had a gun and they shot him five times with it to get his gun and they did not take his gun. So his gun was still found on his body, supposedly because the holster was tricky. Very strange story. And then later, when those guys were supposedly in a shootout in in Watertown, they had two guns. So the initial story was they needed two guns. They only had one gun. They wasted five bullets on this guy and did not get his gun. But he was supposedly found by his friend Richard Donahue, who was a Boston transit cop and Sean Collier's roommate or um, classmate in the in cop school. Initial reports were that both of those guys were shot then and there. And uh, but the later reports were that Donahue was also shot that night, even though he was the guy who discovered Sean Collier's body because he was in the Watertown shooting with the Boston Marathon bombing guys. We're going to get to the Watertown shooting part, but the Watertown shooting, all the initial reports were and and the, the police chief of Watertown made this report that there were six Watertown cops in the shooting against the brothers. So this would have meant there were six Watertown cops and one Boston transit cop who was called to the scene. That's what the article said, that he was called to the scene in Watertown to fight these guys. Not that he followed them from the scene with Collier. And to me, that's impossible to believe because he was a first responder when a cop got shot execution style and they take a Boston transit cop. There's no other cops outside of Watertown. This Boston transit cop is fighting it out against the Boston Marathon bombing. Very hard to believe. So he was shot in the femoral artery and supposedly, and I think this might be true and some miracle, like he was supposed to be assassinated and somehow those great hospitals there, which the (laughs) hospital he went to, by the way, was in Cambridge, um, did bring him back to life. And it is possible. Like I, I read about this. He completely bled out for 45 minutes before they got him to the hospital, which is also hard to believe. And they took him to a hospital near where Collier was shot, not near Watertown. And... Uh, I, I thought that they were both probably shot assassination style in Cambridge, unrelated to the Boston Marathon bombing, was my feeling. And, and I thought, I wonder if they were, because they were young, if they were whistleblowers of corruption they saw, or they were in on no good. And I just wondered if it was an inside job. I wondered that out loud, probably in writing only to find out months later that the bullet they pulled from Donahue was a cop bullet, was a government-issued bullet. So it was friendly fire, they called it, but that story was fishy. And I didn't expect Donahue to remember anything about it, and of course he didn't. He did survive. He's still alive, and he has never remembered anything about that day. Can I ask a question, Monica? Yeah. When they pulled that bullet out of him months later, did any of the story change? Oh, the in, in any of the narrative change? There was one change in the narrative, which was they had said then that there was like a multi-unit response in Watertown that included him. So the story of it being six cops and this guy did change later. But I don't remember anything else. Are you thinking of something I said that I'm not? Well, did they, did they? Were they admitting that it was friendly fire or were they still? Okay, got it. Yes, they said in Watertown, in the shootout, he was a victim of friendly fire, that he wasn't shot by the Sarnayevs. Okay. So, okay. So then uh, we're going to get back to the Watertown shootout. I think the next important thing from that night was, or from the escape thing, do you remember anything about a hijacked vehicle, a hijacked victim, anything like that? Did you ever hear anything about those guys hijacking a car in Cambridge the night they were escaping? I don't no, recall that. I don't remember. Okay, well, that's uh, people who are listening, anybody who remember. Now, this thing was seven years ago. It was on tax day in 2013. So it was eight years ago, coming on eight years ago. So it was a long time. And uh, But people who 
who are suspicious of stuff like this remember the details. And this was one of the details. So the story was that they, the official story was that they hijacked a car, a black SUV. The guy who owned the car, they escaped eventually. But before he escaped, he was a Chinese guy. And that's important. And before he escaped, they confessed to him. They said that although they killed a bunch of people, the Boston Marathon bombing, they weren't going to kill him because he was Chinese and they only wanted to kill Americans. Now, there was a Chinese person killed at the international event they had just bombed, so it didn't really make sense. But, And then they asked him if they, if the car, this was a ridiculous question, if the car could be driven to New York because they were going there to do more crimes. And that was not only a confession, but it was also kind of a license to kill from law enforcement because they were on their way to do something else. At some point, even though law enforcement suggested that they, like the story said that the cops couldn't find these guys, despite the fact that the, the, there were records of them using their cell phone the entire time. And I'll tell you why I think they did that, because their family is deep CIA, that they were trying to reach people who could help them and the cops said, oh, we couldn't figure it out, which it cannot be true. Because at that time, I remember my sister, who has lived not too far from there, said in her high school, uh, in the high school football field, the cops busted kids like making out and stuff by finding their cell phones. Like, you'd say, well, my kid is not, didn't come home tonight. And the cops like could find them pinging cell phones even back then. So that was hard to believe. And then another piece of the story was that they were throwing bombs out the window as they were chased from Cambridge to Watertown. And, uh, okay, so the, the Chinese guy escapes and they're, whatever, throwing bombs out the window. Now, a couple of things are wrong with that story. One is the initial, that night, and I still have this article, a lot of stuff's been scrubbed, but I still have this one because I'm sure nobody thought it was important. The guy who, when the carjacking victim escaped, he ran into a gas station. And the guy, the attendant of the gas station said, at first he thought the guy was like faking or acting. It just didn't seem real to him. But that the guy was Caucasian and said that he was thrown out of his own car. So he wasn't Chinese and he didn't escape. And then the other thing is those guys had a green Civic, which they actually say in the story of the carjacking, one of them jumps out of the green Civic and, and hijacks this guy's car. Now, the green Civic was, ended up in Watertown. There are pictures of it with the bomb squad surrounding it for hours. And there was also a bolo, a be on the lookout for the green Civic at one point that night. So the story has to be that one of them drove the carjacked car and the other drove to the green Civic, but who was throwing bombs out the window? So I, every single thing I'm saying is in articles. And most of them I can show you, although I was taken down from WordPress, so some of the links got busted and some of that stuff got scrubbed. But I had my shows, they probably are still there, and I wrote a lot of articles about it. So, uh, so they ended up... Um, so then there was another element of that, which was... That in Watertown, there was a, a white guy on the ground with his head on his, with his hands on his head. And you could hear in the background, there was video saying, don't shoot. It's not what it looks like. That guy's a cop. So my feeling was, and I'm going to tell you the CIA background of the brothers to, for you to understand why this is plausible. My thinking was that that cop that SUV that ended up in Watertown had nothing to do with any carjacking that may or may not have happened in Cambridge, but was a cop, undercover cop vehicle that this cop was in that lured those guys to Watertown because they wanted to turn themselves in. And that the cops started freaking out and he almost got killed, but he didn't. So there's more to, to that story. Hold on. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. 
From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let me just make sure I got... Oh, one thing is John Miller. Do you know who John Miller is? He's a, he was a journalist... He no. was a journalist on CBS for a while. You would, I, my guess is you would recognize him if you saw him. He was pretty popular at the time. He, prior to his being a journalist, he was a PR guy for the FBI. And now he's the PR guy for the New York Police Department, or he was the last time I heard from him. But at this time, during this time, he was a CBS reporter and he got an exclusive interview with Danny where Danny was kind of in the shadows, muffled voice, and told this story, which definitely conflicted with the evidence. So that was just very curious. Uh, Okay. What happened? The shootout in Watertown. All right. So... There's... there, There was some video, lots of different pieces of video, pictures, media coverage, stuff like that. There was one piece of video that showed, you couldn't really see it, but you could hear it clearly. The, it was probably the older brother saying, we give up, we didn't do it. And right after he says that, he's out of the car, you hear, after he says we give up, we didn't do it, a hail of bullets. So the shooting started after he surrendered, which is pretty fishy. And also, it was, it was dark, so I don't know how that folds into the whole Donahue Collier story. But anyway, so, but here's what's weird, is that, okay, that's what happened. And then later that night, it was quite late, there was a CNN report, which I had, I don't know if I still have the video of, but I had the video of it. It was a naked man being put in a cop car, naked. The guy was stripped naked, put in a cop car. Well, when uh, I had that picture and I stayed up for hours into the night comparing that with an article I had found called Will Box for Passport, which featured Tamerlan Surnayev as a guy who wanted to be on the American Olympic boxing team and was willing to stay amateur, keep his amateur status in order to get U.S. citizenship. There was this whole story about him. It showed his girlfriend, who they said was an Italian-Portuguese chick. He said he had no American friends. That picture was the picture of his wife, who is an American, whose grandfather was in Skull and Bones, whose father went to Yale, whose grandfather was in military intelligence. His wife was deep state, from a deep state family. She was not a Portuguese immigrant, but it was the same picture. So I found that article, which was partially scrubbed or fully scrubbed, but I found the pictures of it. And there were pictures, he was a boxer. So there were tons of pictures of him without a shirt on. And he had a very distinctive body, like a really, really rectangular pecs and it was just extremely distinctive and I scrutinized the crap and I looked at other people like does everybody look like that blah 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 so there was no doubt in my mind that was the same guy and because it was the same guy I knew that the naked man was Tamerlan Sinaev in police custody alive to the point there were such good pictures that Alex Jones ripped me off so after I published them, Alex Jones put them on his side. I was like, it was a moment of both thrill and resentment. Yeah. So, uh, so, at that, so I said that on the air. I think I covered it more than one day because I, I seem to recall I was back on Saturday with more of the story. And a few people, one on Facebook and a caller, warned me as a friend and fan Never to say you're sure about something like that. If you just say you're not sure, you'll be okay. But if you start saying you're sure, that's where it's going to be a problem. And I was like, I was too stupid to listen to him, to be honest with you. So, and now I feel like enough time has passed, nobody cares. But, so, uh, he, so yeah, so I was sure that was him, yet, he w- it was said that he was run o- that his brother somehow um, jumped back into the car and ran his own brother over and killed him. I saw a picture of the body and it had, or a 
autopsy report, something that made it clear that he was shot as well as bludgeoned or run over, blunt force trauma. And I, but I believe he also had bullet wounds. And there was a, a radio call-in show where a woman said she was sleeping over her boyfriend's house so she could, he lived in Watertown. She saw out the window Tamerlan Snive getting run over by a cop SUV. And that folds into, and I saw a picture of the cop SUV so with damage. So that folds into my theory that there was a cop SUV there, that it wasn't the carjacking car, the black car, that it wasn't Jahar who was driving it, but so they had uh, never take they had never pulled off the carjacking and just been in the Civic the whole time. That's what I think. That and they needed a, yeah. they needed the cover up why there would have been a black SUV there. That's what I think. Yeah. So so then Jahar Snive was dead. I mean, you see pictures of him dead. So you see him in police custody alive, and then you see pictures of him dead shortly thereafter. But the dead pictures are they just like morgue morgue pictures? Yes. There's nothing on at the scene. No, although I believe there is still that audio of the woman with the blow by blow of the yeah. of what she saw, and that makes more sense. How do you think the, oh sorry, go ahead. Yeah, How do you think or why why was he naked? Yeah, I would, yeah, I think they stripped him because he was a bomber. Okay. So I think they were worried that he had something strapped to his body before they put him in a cop car. Oh, Right, so that just so is the fact him, that that take not, off your clothes. not everybody there was was in on it. Oh no, the Watertown cops were not. That's okay. why they wanted to shoot the undercover guy by accident. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I think they said, "Take your clothes off," and uh, so we can see, you know. Yeah. And then they just arrested him straight up. Yeah. But then I think that's when all the other agencies converged and things started to change. And that CNN stuff got pulled and CNN said that was not him. That was a different man. But it okay. wasn't. It was not a different man. And so uh, the, the initial report is that he's dead on the scene. Because his brother ran him over. Right. Okay. Which is like virtually impossible to believe when you follow. I mean, the, they, the kid ran away. The kid was a dental student. He went to Boston Latin, which is one of the most prestigious high schools in the country. I mean, th these guys were, they were very well connected. So let me get into that. Can, can we back up just to yeah. clarify? Um, so, all right, the story is that he got shot and then his brother trying to escape ran him over. Yes. But then the, the flip side of that is that they put him into a, into police custody naked. Yeah, well, so this those is are what I'm two saying. What I'm saying is, Tamerlan Sinayev was put into police custody, I, I'm guessing, by the Watertown cops. And then other cops showed up and dragged him out of there okay. or interrogating him, whatever, and assassinated him. Okay. But the brother ran away. That's what I think. The brother ran away. Mm -hmm. And then Boston went into lockdown. Yeah. Remember that? Like Boston yes. was in lockdown for a day. They had big tanks. They had guys with, you know, military with long guns. I think it was 9,000 soldiers converged on Boston for this one kid who was injured, supposedly. And they went into people's houses with these big guns, scaring the crap out of them. Locked it down for at least one whole day. I think maybe it was a day and a half or longer. And then only after that lockdown was Jahar Sarnaya found... And he was found in an area outside the lockdown. And everyone said that was incompetence. But I think the lockdown, they didn't want to find the guy because they were running a drill on martial law slash lockdown. So I think the way our, I think the way governments work, the way our, you know, any operations like this would work is that they have to do drills to see how populations respond. And I think that's probably something they openly admit. I know they they kind of do stuff like that in foreign countries. I remember like an Operation Camelot in Chile from the 60s or 70s. They openly admitted they did it. But I think that the Boston lockdown was a drill to see how Americans would respond. And I, as someone who might defend that policy could say, well, they they need to do that. They need to conduct these kind of experiments for you to be safe from some kind of invasion or terrorist attack. And it doesn't work if, they, if, you, if you know it's a drill. 
So they did that for your own good. It's totally legit, whatever. I don't know, but that's what I think it was. And that they didn't want to find the guy until after they were finished with their drills. And, and then he did, he did get found, found very shortly thereafter in a boat. Supposedly, this is the story. He was in a boat and he was injured. And uh, the FBI hostage rescue team, which is a very small elite group that gets called out rarely. And, uh, and, he, and they were called out and they got him out of that boat. So a couple of things there. One is the story after that, and people will remember this, is that he was in surgery. He had um, like a throat injury. He was on a ventilator. Maybe he was in some kind of coma or whatever. He could barely talk. He had to write things down. And I saw the picture of him post-op and it absolutely looked like a morgue picture. He had liver mortis, like he had pooling of blood in the back of his neck. He had plugs in his ears, which I've been told is so like your brains don't fall out. There were weird like suture marks in his head. And most interesting, there were no tubes, no IVs, no ventilator, nothing. That guy looked dead. So I said on that day, which is a few days after the bombing, we're never going to see that kid alive again because he's dead. And we never did. And then, and I'll just fast forward for a sec, a couple of, this is one of the items that, that I was on somebody's radar. So the first one was that, the Facebook thing and the guy calling saying, never say you're sure. Also that Alex Jones picked it up. But uh, that later when he was supposedly on trial or had a hearing, I said, you're not going to see this guy. And they had the media standing on the street for like a mile. It was crazy. And you never saw him. You saw some sketches. There was an interview with a friend of his who said, it doesn't look like the same person. It's not the guy I knew, which everyone inferred was, oh, he's been through so much. But I was like, I don't think it is the same person. And I said, see, you're never going to see a picture of that guy. And then about a week or two later, the Boston Globe put out a picture of him in a cell where it was very like blurry and sketchy. And I honestly think it was a response to me saying, you'll never see a picture of that guy alive again. And you still have, that was it. You've never seen it again. I do not think he's alive. Um, and here's the thing. And I think there were probably two other people who would have confirmed that he was not alive, but they fell out of a helicopter a month after he was taken out of the boat. These were two guys called. Um, oh, by the way, he wrote, this, is, this might come up later. While he was in that boat, Jahar wrote with ballpoint pen yeah. on fiberglass, which I, I, maybe you can write with ballpoint pen on a confession. And guess who got the exclusive interview with Jahar about that confession? John Miller. So nobody okay. else got to talk to Jahar except for John Miller, who gets the exclusives and worked for the FBI before and NYPD after. Okay, so the two guys are Christopher Lorick and Stephen Shaw. Two guys, 40 and 41, I think was their ages. On May 17th, 2013, they were on the FBI hostage rescue team and they fell out of a helicopter uh, off the coast of Virginia on a training exercise. These were very seasoned guys. I don't know why they were doing training exercises on a helicopter when they're the FBI hostage rescue team. I don't know. But I could never find, although I saw, I think it was an RT, Russia Today article that said that they were definitely on the scene. I could not find that, that they were definitely there for the Boston Marathon bombing. But this is a very small elite squad. And recently I investigated to see if anything ever came up about that really crazy accident. And I found that there was a journalist called Scott Doherty who I think it was called like the pilot or something from around there in Virginia. He would not let it go. He did FOIA, Freedom of Information Act stuff, to try to find out the conclusions of the investigation on how these guys fell out of that helicopter. And uh, it, he said his stuff was heavily redacted. And as he was like, you can read the couple of articles from him, he's clearly PO'd about the whole thing. And then you just don't ever hear anything about it again from him or anybody else. So I'm not... I, I don't know if those guys were at the scene and I don't know what happened, but I did read an article that said they were at the scene 
and they fell out of a plane uh, a month later. So that was weird. Uh, Okay. So... Yeah, it's really it's really complicated. Okay, but we're almost finished, actually. All right. So, uh, who is Tamerlan Tsunayev, or what is that family? This is what this is why I say that I think that they were probably trying to get put out a lifeline for themselves. Because uh, remember, well, you probably don't remember, but there was Uncle Sarney. There was Uncle Ruslan Sarney. Was a guy who was the boy's uncle. And he got on TV and he said, you turn yourselves in. You are making us look bad. You need to to own up to what you've done and all this kind of stuff. The guy was freaking out on the air. Uh, Uncle Ruslan Sarni, by the way, used to be Uncle Ruslan, used to be Ruslan Sarnayev. He changed his name. And he was married to someone named Samantha Fuller Sarnayev. They were divorced, but went at that time. But prior to that, when they were married, they lived, they had they at least had an address in her father's house. So his his address was the address of Graham Fuller, her father. And uh her father, Graham Fuller, was the CIA chief of Kabul, Afghanistan. And that's he had jurisdiction, I believe, at one point over Dagestan and Chechnya or something like that. He had some association. I want to read a quote from Graham Fuller. So Uncle Sarnayev worked for USAID, which is widely regarded as a CIA front operation. And even if people who get mad at me have gotten complaints that I say that, will admit that they do intelligence work. The only argument is that they also help people. I actually think the money they supposedly help people with is for them to effect regime change, convert political sentiments uh, among the poor, stuff like that. But regardless, they are as well established that they do intelligence stuff. And this guy was doing that. And what he was doing specifically, Russell and Sarnayev, was he was taking that money to reach out. From what I understand, now this is from memory. I didn't, I didn't remember to look this up in my research, that he would go to uh, imams and Muslim leaders in the Middle East and give them some of that money, tell them they had U.S. funding to direct their studies, their, their, to lead their people in a, one direction or another. Now, to understand what direction that might be, let's listen to a quote. I'm going to read you a quote from Graham Fuller, which is, uh, he writes in a book, I believe this is in the book called um, dollars for terror, which was translated from French. Uh, I should have that. I should have that um, citation, but I don't see it handy. Anyway, oh yeah, dollars for terror: the United States and Islam by Richard Labaf La Bevier. The policy of guiding the evolution of Islam and of helping them against our adversaries worked marvelously well in Afghanistan against the Red Army. The same. Doctrines can still be used to destabilize what remains of Russian power and especially to counter counter the Chinese influence in Central Asia. So that that was Graham Fuller saying, and, and there's other places, I believe, where he talks about Dagestan in particular. He's saying, we fight Russia in these oil-rich places by exploiting uh, Islamist leaders. And we are going to we are going to transfer, we're going to transform that effort against Russia to other areas, not just the Middle East, but the central kind of Asian area, which is Dakistan, Chechnya, stuff like that, and um, use it also against China. So this is what Graham Fuller was up to. <laughs> and Ruslan Sarnayev seemed to be a part of that. And Tamalon Sarnayev was, uh, I saw a document that verified this, but it's just one document, who knows, could have been forged, but looked authentic to me that he attended a training seminar at the Jamestown Foundation outpost over there. I think it was in Georgia, the country of Georgia. So, and there was a Wall Street Journal article about him a long time later, trying to like paint a picture of him of a certain way, saying that he was in contact with the with imams over there, saying that he had U.S. money for them. So it looked like to me, he was doing the same thing that Russell was doing. Um, and at that point... Uh, yes. Uh, around that time, I think Russia wrote a letter to the U.S. FBI or CIA saying, get your terrorists out of our territory. 
But they were our ter- you know, they were saying you guys are using your terrorists against us. That's what Russia was saying. But if you remember the Boston Marathon story, it was we had those guys on a terrorist watch list. It wasn't really that, I don't think. I think it was that Russia had them on a terrorist watch list and they were our terrorists. So once they were made by Russia, this guy, Tamerlan, was not going to be able to be of any use to us um, because he was made by the Russians. They just weren't going to let him move around over there. So I think that's why they used him as a patsy. But it's also why they had him on a terrorist watch list and his address was like one or two miles away from the Boston Marathon bombing. And if you'll recall, I think it might have been Mueller himself, who was the head of the FBI at this time, got on TV and said, please help us look at these videos. Please help us identify suspect one and suspect two in the Boston Marathon bombing. We can't figure it out. And there's just no way that they had Muslim terrorists on a watch list one mile from the Boston Marathon bombing, and they couldn't figure that out. Like, that seemed like a psyop to me. But, and the kid, I think Jahar was just along for the ride. I mean, if you looked at his tweets, his tweets were like, I'm watching Game of Thrones and ordering Domino's. And then the next day it's like, I'm watching Game of Thrones and ordering Subway. And the next day it was like, I love Subway. I mean, that's literally what his Twitter feed was. I mean, that kid was a dense, wanted to be a dense. So, um, all right. Any questions <laughs> so far? I think I'm I think I'm okay. It's a lot of information <laughs> to keep up with. Sorry, is it too much? No. Okay. How are you uh, feeling, Deborah? Just just anxious. Sorry. Am I bumming you out? You no. no, just you know, it's exciting. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Um <laughs> hopefully nobody really cares about it anymore. So, <laughs> so um All right, so there were some details I might have glossed over. The mother said that the naked man was definitely Tamerlan. The mother of the two boys. Tamerlan's mother and aunt came out publicly and said the naked man was definitely Tamerlan. And they're, they're, are they Dagestani? I think they're from Dagestan, yeah. They were born, the boys, I just read that they were born in Kyrgyzstan. Now, my Chechnya, Dagestan, Kyrgyzstan. Yeah, it's thing all jumbled not, up over it's, there. It's a little, <laughs> I'm a little rusty on that. White, white Russian Muslim guys. That's yeah, what some, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I couldn't even tell you. Like, Kyrgyzstan is a country. Chechnya is a country, right? Kyrgyzstan yeah, Chechnya. Is, is not a country. So, um, I don't even know. Like, I, I, it's just, but it's, they're all around the same place. And those got those people. Like the Caucasus Mountains area. Yes. They were really, literally Caucasian. Yeah. They're Caucasians. Yeah. And, and the, and the aunt, the mother also said that the government had been working with Tamerlan regularly. She said he, they knew all about him. They were here regularly. She didn't say he was an operative, but she said that, that they were in her house talking to him. So, and the connect so the connection would have been the uncle, his father in law, the uncle's the, father in law, and the then from, so from the father in law to the uncle to uh Ruslan. So, Ruslan's father in law, Ruslan himself, yeah, right. So, the father in law was the CIA guy, Ruslan was USAID, Tamerlan, Tamerlan, okay, was the at older, the, the older brother, Foundation. yeah. Tamerlan is at the Jamestown Foundation, and his wife comes from an old Skull and Bones family. Okay. So there, uh, it seems to me that he was following in their footsteps, and he was outed by Russia, seems to me. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so in another little thing is that in the will box for passport, he said he has no American friends, but another... Um, article I read about an investigation into a triple homicide in Waltham. Three Jewish guys were killed in what looked like a drug-related slaying at the time. One of those guys, Tamerlan had described as his best friend. So he was not only American, he was Jewish. And this is Tamerlan Snyder was on the record as saying that was his best friend. And there were witnesses to that effect. So I don't know why those guys were killed. They were killed in September of 2011. And those, were those the MMA guys? Well, Ibrahim Todeshev was an was a 
that kind of, I don't know if it was specifically MMA, but that, okay. yeah. Abraham Todeshev, that's another person in the story okay. who died. Sorry. And MMA is, is what? It's like mixed martial arts. Oh, oh, okay. So, so Tamerlan was a boxer and I guess he did other stuff. And then he uh, had an acquaintance, not really good friend, but an acquaintance from Russia, from somewhere in uh, one of those places, maybe also Chechnya, I don't know. Named Abraham Todeshev. So Brendan Mess was a guy. So then later they tried to pin those three murders on the Sarnayas. But it seems highly unlikely to me. Um, and it also just proves that that article about him was completely untrue. And I feel like they were establishing a legacy for this guy because they wanted him to be, he was going to be an undercover CIA agent. Because that his, his the, the, uh, the coverage of him as a boxer was full of absolute falsehoods. Which is weird. Um, and his Amazon wish list had stuff like how to make friends and influence people. It had philosophy. It did not look like the wish list of a, it looked more like the wish list of a spy than um, a radical Islamist. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm checking the stuff off here, babe. Okay. Okay. Oh, and Mueller, by the way, had a very sketchy backstory in Boston himself. I believe he was the U.S. attorney there. And um, some of the stuff he did, not only there but elsewhere, cost the government millions of dollars for putting the wrong people in jail. So that guy is not beneath lying, um, not above lying. Okay, there was another little wrinkle before we get to Ibrahim Todeshev. Chris Kyle. Chris Kyle was American Sniper. Remember that story? It was a movie yeah. with Bradley Cooper. He was supposedly a hero. <laughs> I, I stopped watching that movie one minute in where the first heroic act is him shooting a woman and child. So, but they were back. So, on, you know, on their own, in their own country. So, but Chris Kyle, I suspect Chris Kyle had his own, he did have his own morality. And uh, he was like the killingest sniper of them all or something like that. But he weirdly, or, you know, just happened to be, was killed in February of that year. So about like two, two months and two weeks, maybe two and a half months before the Boston Marathon bombing, Chris Kyle was killed in a very unusual circumstance. He was taking a soldier who had PTSD to, to a gun range for therapeutic reasons. And the guy... They, for some reason, pulled off to some remote place, and that guy supposedly shot Chris Kyle to death. Weird. Uh, I never really thought much more about that, except for when you see the pictures from the Boston Marathon bombing. First of all, when you see the FBI, I think it might have been Mueller, say, look at these videos, tell us if you can help find suspect one and suspect two. When you look at those videos, you can see that they were being tailed. You can see a couple of guys with like the curly things in their ears. They're totally dressed normally, but they've got earpieces and they're, and they're watching these, these fellas. And, they're, and they, the Sarnayas had kind of empty backpacks. They're, they really didn't match the description of the backpacks that the bombs supposedly were in because the bombs contained pressure cookers, which I don't know if, I mean, it's an old fashioned thing, but if you've ever seen a pressure cooker, they're big. And first of all, I've only ever seen them with a handle, but I'm sure you don't have to have them with a handle, but they're big and they yeah, don't collapse. Big like a crock pot, right? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but in other pictures, you see guys with black backpacks, big black backpacks, all dressed in black with the Kraft International. Kraft International, yeah. Yeah, we've had Charlie Robinson on the show too. So Yeah, now he, he focuses on like the hoax aspect of it. Yeah. But I don't. I never even looked into that. I I thought it was real, which is why it pulled the scales from my eyes. But those Kraft International guys were there, and they had black backpacks. Why were they there? I don't know. But Kraft International was Chris Kyle's mercenary company. So, so Deborah Kraft is like it's like one of the it's like a contracting company. You know, they con like soldiers, like uh, mercenary soldiers after they get discharged from the military, go back and and do like weird black ops stuff. I think it's like, even, yeah, I think it's even bigger than that now. I think it's, I, I think it might be a large percentage, if not a majority of our boots on the ground over there are private contractors. Yeah. So, what was, what, yeah. what was the main company that everybody knows the name of first? Um, um, Blackwater. Yeah. Yeah. Blackwater. So yeah. it's, it's like that, Deborah. And That's what Kraft is. Okay. Their, so not the macaroni makers. No. Right. Kraft with a C and the logo is very distinctive because I, it's 
Um, it's a logo from a movie. Is it Punisher skulls? Yes. I hate Punisher skulls. They're yeah, so dorky. So a skull, and then it has like a dripping like this, but it's very distinctive, and you can tell the shape from far away. It's crystal clear these guys are craft. But Chris Kyle, who run, ran craft, was dead. He was killed under suspicious circumstances. So again, if I were to speculate, I would say they came to him. They said they wanted to do this, and that was a bridge too far for him. But once they told him about it, what are you going to do? <laughs> you know, maybe he just wasn't the kind of guy who was going to keep his mouth shut. I mean, there are people like that. Yeah. People who have feel empowered. So I thought that was weird. And then um, I think the last, the last chapter here for me was very tragic. And it's the third example of how I know I was on the radar. This guy, Ibrahim Todeshev was a Russian, but he was from one of the, you know, he's technically Russian, but it, I think he was from one of those areas, like Central Asian type areas. And he he was an acquaintance of Tamerlan Shnaev. And Tamerlan, uh, Tamerlan told him that he was being set up for this. So while Tamerlan was on the run, he communicated with this guy and told me he was being set up. And I suspect that Ibrahim knew that Tamerlan had kind of like uh, CIA connections. Like to, uh, Ibrahim could have probably filled in some of these blanks for us. And he was very nervous and he had a pre-planned trip to go back to Russia. He was one of 13 kids. He was going back to Russia. But the FBI asked him not to. They wanted to talk to him. And they came to his house to talk to him. And while he was waiting for them, he he had another friend, Kushin Tamarov, maybe? Um, I had a video of that. I don't know if that's still up of Christian Tamara being interviewed by the local news outside this guy's apartment after the FBI came to visit him. And that was really almost chokes me up right now. So Ibrahim Todashev said, I'm, I'm worried. I'm scared of these people. And he went in unarmed in his own apartment and they shot him six times in the body and once in the crown of the head. They said they, he came at them with a, with a broom with a machine, with a samurai sword. That's what they they kept changing the story. Yes, and it was some super shady cop that had been who was interviewing. Him. He'd been like kicked off the Oakland Police Department. Am I right there? I don't remember that story. I think there was also a chick cop there, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. There's uh, some guy that did some shady stuff in Oakland, California, and he was for some reason one of the police officers there. You know, why was he in Florida? So I don't actually don't remember investigating those guys specifically. I know that the father did investigate from Russia and he demand like there was an open letter from him to the FBI showing the autopsy pictures of how this guy, you know, like this is like a grouping and a crown shot. You know, it was an assassination. There's no question about it of this guy. Really heartbreaking. Really. And he was he was the friend of Tamerlan. He was just a friend. He wasn't even a friend. He was a guy who used to go. He was just another gym rat. It's like a training uh-huh. partner. And they were from a similar place they probably spoke the same language russian i'm sure and they just were acquaintances they were buddies like that i mean he they didn't even it wasn't even a good friend apparently and um so then i talked about this on the air and his wife called she had a lawyer who contacted me. And is this is this Brian's wife? Ibrahim Todashev's wife. Okay. And she asked, her lawyer asked if I would talk to her. And I don't know why I didn't put this on the air. It was good. I, I kind of had a rule. Not I wasn't, I was a call-in show. I wasn't an interview show. So I think I probably took that too seriously. I had some really good interviews I did not put on the air. But I still have the interview. And um she, so I know she was in Russia because I was meant to call her from the studio so I could record it. And I could not dial Russia from the studio because it was a corporate phone line and they didn't let international. So it took me hours to reach her, but she was in Russia and she, she was outraged. This guy got killed, but there were two weird things about the conversation with her, but that's how I knew that, that I was on some radar that was bigger than just what I know my normal reach. Because how would she even know about me? She said two things that I thought were weird, but that could have just been a mistake. I mean, in the final, you know, reflecting, I think she was authentic. One is, 
I thought they had a marriage of like convenience for immigration purposes. And because he was living with a woman, Abraham Todeshev, and I saw a video, they all said it was her, just a roommate, just a roommate, but I saw a video that the, the roommate supposedly took where he goes and kisses her on the cheek. You don't see her, but you see him kiss her. So it seemed like they were more than just roommates. And I said to the wife, who I thought was just an arranged marriage, you know, a marriage of convenience. I said, well, what about his girlfriend? She's like, what do you mean his girlfriend? <laughs> I was like, uh, I mean, the woman he was living with, oh, that was his roommate. I was like, okay, okay, okay. But I was like, how did you not know that was his girlfriend? If I know, maybe I was wrong. I could have been wrong. But I did see a video that was mainstream media reported was from his girl, you know, the woman he lived with. And there was like a little smooching or a little sweethearting going on. can't remember uh, what made it, me think of his girlfriend. Anyway, and the other thing was, so I asked the wife, you're in contact with the, with the Sarnayavs. Is Jahar alive? And she said, yes, he is, which I, I still don't believe. And she also said that they weren't patsies or anything, but they were innocent and the government had no one else to blame it on. They couldn't figure out what happened. So they blamed it on these guys. Now, I, I, you don't have to be as far down the rabbit hole as I am to know that the government knew what happened. You know, they, they either did it or they knew what happened. Like, there's just too, too, too much detail. And these guys were, you could see people watching. You know, you could see the guys with the curly ear, you know, you could see Kraft International. There's no way the government did not know what was happening. So there's no way they're just pinning on it out of incompetence. But that's what this chick said. And I assume that's what she felt safe saying. And And that was it. So, uh, that's all I got. And that's, that's why I was red pill. Yeah. Um, so I guess the question I would ask is, do you, what do you think the, the motivation was to pull off a false flag like this? Do you think it was just a test to see if they could lock people down? I think, uh, they, I think that was a big part of it. And I think that they, they, they had this, they really were promoting an atmosphere of terror for a really long time. Yeah. That was, the, like fla that was the flavor of the, of the decade before yeah, the white nationalists came about. Right. And, and actually one of the initial stories was that they were going to blame it on, on a domestic terrorist. Really? That was one of the first stories. Like Alex Jones said, he had that inside source who said it was going to be, and then that isn't how the story unfolded. So it, I always think they do have kind of plans and backup plans. Yeah. But I remember, I, I mentioned this recently for another reason, but the New York Times and Judge Knapp in one of his last shows, Judge Napolitano on Fox News, said with evidence that over 90%, and New York Times had the same story, over 90% of the terrorists were um, as, as the New York Times article was headlined, um, terror plots hatched. You know, 95% of terror, terror plots hatched by the FBI. So, and the Wall, World Trade Center bombing in like 95 was absolutely an FBI sting operation that either went wrong or was actually meant to do some damage. But their, the guy, their operative released audio he took of him and his FBI handler where he's he's asking for money to pay for his expenses and gets the guy to just acknowledge that he was in there for the FBI before the World Trade Center, first World Trade Center bombing. So was that one um, bin Laden as well? Was I the, think it was the, the blind the, sheik. Okay. I think who is running, who's running madrasas or whatever they call them in like uh radical schools from a jail here like it's so crazy that he's like online running these schools that are radicalizing while he's in u.s custody it's very weird but anyway so the fbi did hatch a lot of plots at that time and i think no okay i think okc as well Yes, yes. And that was domestic terrorism because Timothy McVeigh wrote that letter to New York Times saying I was pulled, or he wrote a letter to his sister that the New York Times published saying I was pulled out for special ops. It's, it's, uh, sheep dipped. Oh, that, sheep dipped. He that's sheep what it dipped. is. That's what sheep they call it, right? Dipped. Yeah, is when they, they 
you're discharged from the military, but secretly oh. kept in. Okay. I, I thought it was when they erased certain parts of your history. It could be that as well. There's yeah. um there's a really good uh, movie. It used to be on Amazon. It's yes. not anymore. Big surprise. You can get it on BitChute now um, called uh, A Noble Lie. Oh, yes. I've read yeah, that. I mean, I watched that. that before. Yeah. yeah. And they uh, they show like this guy. That was great. This guy who it was um he was he was like a movie producer or something. And he was scouting for spots to do this to do a movie, and he was at some like military some remote military outpost, um just filming and like kind of going around and talking to the people that were all the army guys that were working there. And it was supposedly after Timothy McVeigh had been discharged and he like goes he sees like a tank with like the top lifted up and he like goes he like looks in the tank and timothy mcveigh's in there in like army fatigues like doing something to a tank and he talks to him for like five seconds real quick do you see it on the film yeah i think i kind of i'm working on this guy to come on the show and talk about it who knows a lot but he's being kind of flaky but i'm gonna try to get him on so i should watch that movie again it's really good so backing up just a a little bit the blind sheik yeah he was supposedly the guy who did the world trade center was it 95 or 93 i can't remember one okc was one i think think okc was 94 okay it was around that time i forget which one was first but the blind sheik supposedly masterminded that first world trade center bombing Mm -hmm. and then he was in jail for it and i think he's still in jail for it if he hasn't died but he's also supposedly running um after Gaddafi was taken down in libya and radical islam swept north africa which Gaddafi said would happen if they took him out that uh, supposedly that's happening because the blind sheik is setting up he he's controlling the situation on the ground there from his cell in a U.S. federal prison. <laughs> so they can't figure out how to stop that. I don't know. Crazy. Um, what do you think, Deborah? I'm. I, they're, they're, uh, That's the proper answer. I think. <laughs> yeah, a lot it's of a lot of for sure. A lot of a lot of information that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> what would your if you believed if you thought all that I just said was true, assume that you just accepted it all. What if you synthesize that stuff, what in the, in short do you think I'm saying happened? That this was all um, a mission to instill fear. And that all the, the, the damage and the injuries and the lives lost are to keep us in fear. Am I off? Uh, I think that is one element of it. I don't know for sure who died, if people died or were hurt, or if it was a hoax, but I also feel like the martial law elements of it, the 9,000 guys who went to lock down Boston, I think they were practicing. And I think what they learned from stuff like that informs what they, how they plan something like the COVID lockdown. Because they know what you can do, what you're capable of, how people react if they're scared enough and, and everybody just rolled over. Of yeah. course, they did it in Massachusetts where people would roll over. And the COVID stuff is worse to New York and L.A. where also would, would roll over. Places with strict gun laws are probably the places where people are prone to roll over for that stuff. It's so crazy because you see all this stuff about like how, you know, the tough, gritty Boston working class, like Irish guys. And like, it seems like and it's a place that people would roll over. So it's strange. Well, but that the culture there... I think the history went, I mean, my family's Brooklyn Irish. I'm actually a citizen of Irish, of Ireland. Um, but I think the way it shook out up there was that you had whoever were like the real bosses. I don't know if they were all Irish, mostly Irish or what, but what back in the day happened was they kind of took over 
the police force and all those government jobs because they're good jobs. Yeah. And yeah. So, so they're why, great. I mean, Whitey Bulger, Whitey Bulger was yeah. an FBI informant. Whitey Bulger's nephew, Whitey Bulger's real name is James Bulger. James Bulger, his nephew, is one of the investors in the Hunter Biden, Chris Hines, Devin Archer um, consortium, financial consortium that's invested in Ukraine and China. Yeah, I'd heard that too. And the and the bro- the father of that James Bulger the third was a state senator, probably the longest serving state senator, and that was around the time that that Robert Mueller was the U.S. attorney in Boston, and let people get killed, I think, or go to jail for stuff they didn't do in, in not, you know, knowing full well that what they were doing wrong and all like kind of interrelated with the Bulger story. It's all, it's all one, it's all one conspiracy, Deborah. There's just well, Boston one. is a hotbed. Like I, I think Boston, you can count on, I think Florida is another place where you can kind of count on them rolling out. What, whatever yeah. narrative you, you want, you know, whatever narrative the feds tell them to roll out, they will roll out, I think, in those places. That's, that's crazy. Um, yeah, I, I'm really happy we did this. I like, I like how you focus on this aspect, aspect of it. And then if you want to go get like kind of the first half, like the lead up, the bombing itself, you can go listen to, to Charlie Robinson on macroaggressions he has a really good episode on it as well and that'll get you to where we kind of started out so that was in a nutshell one hour start to finish what i think were the important truths about the boston marathon bombing that you weren't finding anywhere else so i do a few false flag flashbacks but a lot of times I do a deep dive like this, 45 minutes or whatever, about uh, actual false flags or real things that are emerging in the news that aren't getting the right coverage, enough coverage in the drive-by media to cite the uh, OG of talk radio. So if you want to hear more of my actual firsthand deep dives and deep research, go to my website, monicasdeepdives.com. There's a listen tab. Drop that down and where you see deep dives, those are deep dives proper. That's where you can find all my firsthand stuff. And then the other stuff, Buddy Dives and um, Dive Master features are all interviews with people who know more about something than I do. So you've got a whole variety there. But if you want to hear it all, just check me out on Deep Dives with Monica Perez on your favorite podcasting platform.